You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Mickey. Hey, Bob. What's the deal with the hood over your face? You've got like a dark cloak over your face. This is puzzling. No, you're you're missing the point here. Oh, now we're kind of like inside the the hood with Mickey. Mickey, I'm not. Oh, I thought you were about to go tubing on us. What what what's with the candles? Well, I'm queuing off the uh, one of the best quotes of the week or a quote of the week from Nancy Pelosi, mm-hmm. where she said that. Uh, Republicans think life starts at the candlelight dinner. Uh, so I thought I would, you know, maybe we could get something going here. A little bromance. Oh, and, I uh, in other words, they, they, life begins at conception. No, because before that, it begins when you go buy the old spice, Bob. <laughs> so, um, as we used uh, to do, you know, it's, uh, you know, I'm I'm desperate here. I have no progeny, so this is my last hope. Wait, I'm your last but, hope? Well, it's been done. <laughs> you know? It's not going to be. Uh, <laughs> uh, I okay. know people have done it. I know people have done it. Uh, I'm not, I, I don't even want to know what it is. I don't think I have a clear idea what it is. I'm pretty sure I don't want to have a clear idea. It involves, it involves surrogacy. Hmm. Okay, well, listen, anyway, best of luck um, with that project. Tell me how it goes. The, uh, the, uh, I missed the Pelosi was, quote, but thanks for bringing that to my attention. Abortion was, a, well, it, it echoes the Kinsley quote, which is Jonathan Shell in his anti nuclear war, uh, uh, very, uh, popular, uh, sort of, uh, essay during the nuclear scare of the Reagan era. Uh, said, you know, there was a second death, which is all the babies who wouldn't have been born. And Kinsley said, why is he banging away at his typewriter when he could be banging away elsewhere? Uh, so once you start getting into potential life, I guess that's part of the this like effective altruism or long termism or something. You know, it's funny. I'm going to have Will McCaskill uh, on my podcast and uh, we may also appear on another uh, podcast together. We've once been invited start- to appear together on another podcast. Yeah. What other podcasts? It's one of the many slate podcasts. It's the one they have one that focuses on the future. Oh, okay. Um anyway, uh well, well, once you start talking about future generations, I get unborn, I get all confused. So as you can yeah. tell. So for people who don't but, know, Will McCaskill is one of the founding persons of uh the effective altruism movement and He's just come out with a book that's about this thing called long-termism, which is related to effective altruism. And what's wants us to count future lives uh, as equal in moral value to our own lives, even though they don't exist yet. And and what's uh what's the class what's the the or example of effective altruism coming to a uh, interesting conclusion? Well, uh, it, it it leads you to well. They would say it leads you to pay more attention than you might otherwise to so-called existential risks, because um, if if the planet is wiped out entirely, um, then jillions and jillions and jillions of yet unborn people will not live. Now, a criticism of it, we don't we, we could get more deeply into this in the parrot room. I'm going to write it down. But a criticism of it is. In principle, in principle, does that mean that we should make extraordinary sacrifices? Like in, in the thought experiment, if for some reason we learned that the only way to keep the planet alive was by extinguishing 98% of the current population, uh, it's either that or or something horrible happens in, in, in three generations that wipes out everybody. Should we? I don't know. That's the bad thought experiment. You get, you get the point. I get you the point. I now know everything I want to know about effective altruism. Uh, well, no, this is long-termism, which is not <laughs> long-termism. Same. Sorry, effective altruism is just the idea that you should uh, pay careful attention to how your kind of philanthropic or charitable resources are being spent and try to get the most bang per buck. So they're big on things like mosquito nets because you can right. like uh, count the lives you're saving. Um, well, it turned out abortion was a big issue on Capitol Hill thanks to Lindsey Graham. What did he say? Everybody's talking about him. What Wait, did he say? 
basically, there are all sorts of polls showing that the, the Democrats have come back because they've mobilized their base. Uh, you know, the, the Democrats have come home. They were disenchanted with Biden. They, they're happy he got something passed. Uh, and, 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 and the abortion thing seems to have also prompted them to want to show up at the polls. So his mm-hmm. polls are rising on the basis of that. He hasn't really gotten the swing voters. The, his ratings are like 45%, not that great. Historically, that means you're going to lose the midterms. Uh, uh, The Democrats are trying to scare people on the grounds that uh, Republicans, uh, if you put them back in power, they're going to try to pass a national abortion ban. So, uh, which is, you know, that's their argument. And lo and behold, Lindsey Graham, on the day that (laughs) Biden has this disastrous inflation victory party, when says, it, hey, let's pass says, a hey, national abortion let's ban. Let's pass a national abortion ban. Right. It's a 15-week ban, but it's a national abortion ban. It's lower, it's more stringent than people would like. And it shows that they're going to fuck around in that space. So he's a complete idiot. It's all driven mm. by the, the by the demands of the uh right to life movement, which wants something. And why couldn't they say do it in the states? That's where you're going to have an effect. Don't do it nationally. Shut the, shut up. Mm-hmm. That's what they should have done. And you know, the answer is, you know, Graham is a publicity hound, okay? But he has some supporters like Rich Lowry of the National Review say this is a good thing. We have to sacrifice in the short term. Well, sacrificing in the short term ain't so good if the result is a massive amnesty that changes the nation forever. So, uh, again, Rich Lowry is showing his occasional sort of not very good political calculations. Uh, but the the mass of the Republican parties tried to, you know, as David Trump says, stuff Lindsey Graham in a canvas bag <laughs> so he wouldn't open his mouth again. But, the you know, the, the media is on the Democrat side, so they're going to make the most of this Graham thing. And, and it's going to cost Republicans. Yeah, actually, the other day I was just like taking a walk or something and a woman I knew drove by and she stopped her car and reported to me. This is the first I heard of what Lindsey Graham had said. She's, You're kidding. She stopped, rolled down her window and said, did you hear what Lindsey Graham said? I mean, she would have stopped and said hi anyway, probably, but that's what was on her mind. She's actually Man. a very active kind of uh, Democrat uh, activist person. We need Ron DeSantis to bust some newcomers into your community, baby. Uh, apparently. So, Mickey, uh, do you spend pretty much all your waking hours worrying that Republicans will do badly in the next election? Well, that's for the next two months, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that's, it's a, that's job know, one. It's a way to pass the time. Uh, the uh, you know, it looks it looks the conventional wisdom is that they will win the House, but maybe not by much. And and uh, the Senate could go either way. The the the, um, the, uh, the the if I had to bet now, I would say the Senate will wind up exactly where it is now with no gain from either side. So there's two but, uh, updates I count on you for. One is in Pennsylvania and one is in Georgia. Okay, the update in Pennsylvania is, uh, it's interesting. There, there, there was a CBS poll that showed that v- voters really don't like Dr. Oz. They think he's a phony, mm-hmm. they, which he may be. They think mm-hmm. he's a carpetbagger who doesn't care about Pennsylvania, which mm-hmm. may be true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Quack he's only fight and a fraud. No, no, not not necessarily that. But he mm-hmm. doesn't really. He's saying things he doesn't really mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's but, not a fraud. Uh, but, um, and he's, you know, he's playing for the suburban women's vote. So he's endorsing things like safe sex marriage. He's not, he's being unconservative in, in many ways. Uh, but, uh, he's only five points behind. They hate him, but he's, well, I mean, his opponent had a stroke and has trouble finishing sentences. Maybe some candidates would be doing better than that. It tells you something about something. Either it tells you his opponent had a stroke or that Pennsylvania is not a blue state, it's a red state normally, or uh, the issue environment favors Republicans. Uh, uh, Maybe it's all three, but it's amazing that he's within striking distance, but he is within striking distance, and they're going to have a debate now, they're going to have a debate in late October. A lot of people will have voted by then, maybe people will hold off, but Fetterman obviously wanted it as late as possible. And they're only going to have one? Only one. And the bar has been set pretty low. If Fetterman makes it through, uh, I think he wins. Uh, so I, I'm not in in the even in the uh, 
I'm not counting on Oz, but he has one, he has one hidden, uh, hidden weapon, which is this crazy MAGA guy, Mastriano, is running for governor. He's going to mm -hmm. lose because mm -hmm. he's a crazy MAGA guy, uh, but uh, he's going to bring out the rural Trump vote, which will maybe vote for Oz. Mm -hmm. So everybody needs a crazy MAGA guy on their ballot. To well, bring out the rubble and, every, and everybody needs one on their podcast. And Mickey, that's why I have <laughs> you. Uh, but um, I can't find my MAGA hat, so I can't satisfy your wildest dreams. But um, you're doing a pretty the, good job. Uh, but no, I mean, I, I, I'm on the defensive. I do not want Trump to run again. I want him knocked out, but I haven't figured out how to do it. Um, and I wanted, I wanted him to. I didn't want him to be nominated last time. So there you go. But you figured as long as he was, you might as well vote for him. I only had two choices. That's true. I was being I was being a long turber. I was saying Biden I'd much rather have than Trump, but Biden comes with the existential risk of a nation breaking amnesty, which would be indefinite into the future. Mm -hmm. And so I gave that heavy weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I know that the, if I know that the Democrats were going to do that badly in the congressional elections, I probably would have voted for Biden. Uh, but anyway, okay, I'll, um, I'll quit tormenting you about your. Uh, your that's okay. Pass. That's why we have Arya Cohn Wade. Is that his name? That's his name. Okay. Uh, he's gotten a follower. He's picking up steam. Uh, anyway, um, uh, the so 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 the basically. Uh, if you have a crazy MAGA person on the ballot with you and you are a Republican of any stripe, he brings out the vote that otherwise might not show up for Oz, but they might show up for Mastriano mm -hmm. and maybe mm -hmm. they'll vote for Oz. So th mm -hmm. that's a potential uh, way Oz could win. The, uh, now, do you, can I just ask you, have you seen Fetterman speak lately enough to give us a progress report on his development? No, I saw a tweet that said this won't this basically this won't do. This still sucks. See, but I think I, only, I don't like to watch people in pain and suffering. That's the problem. Uh, OK, the the uh, I think at the beginning of his debate, he should kind of apologize. He should do the expectations lowering right away. He should, he should say, I want to apologize. Look, I've come a long way, but the words are still a little slow to come to mind. Bear with me and uh, kind of convey that, you know, you should have seen me six weeks ago. And then he should unleash a fabulous anti-Oz rap. Yeah. Filled with internal alliteration. Right. Then just turn it up to 11. Absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, good. Uh, that's a good strategy. Uh, so anyway, I guess I would say it's a tie. The Republicans would win what? They, they looks like Walker is ahead in Georgia. It looks like Johnson might pull it out in Wisconsin. Uh, it looks like Vance is ahead, although... For some reason, you get this tenuous uh, sense with Vance that he, you know, he's unskilled and he's not doesn't have any money, uh, and uh, and Ryan is running a very very clever race where he distances himself from Biden at every opportunity. Uh, so uh, that's that's always up in the air, and uh, the, the 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 key race is uh, is Nevada. Where the latest poll showed, showed the Republican up by one. So, so wait, just just to make sure I got the other ones. Your predictions quickly in Georgia, no, Pennsylvania, just, and Ohio are. Now, yeah, if I had to guess now. I would say this is my this is Mickey's road to a to a. And they are and a, they are a, a null result where neither side wins a seat, which is Georgia, Ohio, Wisconsin, and Nevada. And the other oh, and if they get North North Carolina, then the Republicans win one. Okay, wait, but, but what is it? Okay, lose. wait, but but I think I missed it. You're saying who's going to win Georgia? Herschel Walker. God, that's I, terrifying. I, I, that, that is terrifying. Not, that is terrifying. Not, Has there not, ever been a less qualified candidate? These are Senate? not. These are not predictions. These are, you know, my 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 sense of the way things are going. Right. The, You're probably the faster principle says. The final faster principle says. Anything can happen, and okay. it's at so, the moment it's the friend of the Republicans because it means Lindsey Graham will fade okay. into history. Okay, so quickly make sure I got this right. You're, and you, and your intuition right now says what will happen in Pennsylvania? My intuition right now, I don't know. I, I, it's up in the air. I think Fetterman up in the is air. better. Okay, Fetterman's Ohio. Better you're so you're saying Vance. Uh huh. Okay. 
That was the main thing. It's interesting. Uh, Has there ever been a less qualified person in the Senate than Herschel Walker ever? Can we think of one? Tommy Tuberville? Be an interesting, <laughs> yeah. que uh, interesting question. Uh, he's, I don't know, you know, so, people are realizing senators are just people who vote for a party. That's their 80% of what they're good for is they will vote for Mitch McConnell mm -hmm. or for Chuck Schumer and determine who controls the Senate. Uh, after that, they, they can do all sorts of things. They can be Lindsey Graham. They can walk off the reservation. Uh, but, you know, that's mainly they're there to provide votes for their party. Mm. Uh, so and that's that's also true in the House. But uh, so, you know, Herschel Walker probably won't satisfy the founder's vision of a Senate of brilliant people like Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who. Uh, will expound eloquently and idiosyncratically on the issues of the day. On the other hand, Daniel Winehead was often wrong, as we'll get to at some point in this, in this where you know, he said that welfare reform would leave children sleeping on grates picked up frozen in the morning, and it turned out uh, poverty plunged to record lows, so child poverty. So, um, uh, you know, Moynihan, Moynihan was a brilliant, brilliant man, smarter than anybody probably in the Senate when he was there, he probably had an IQ of 200, and he was wrong, 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 wrong again and again. So what do you want? Maybe it was the occasional beverage. <laughs> the senator is on the floor. <laughs> That's what his staff famously used to tell callers. Um, which is strictly speaking true. <laughs> no. um, Actually, Moynihan's secret, like many people, was that he was never as drunk as he seemed to be. Mm. And and he's like, what are these people? They seem drunk, and then all of a sudden they'll pick up something you said and have a brilliant response. So he could function uh, well while he had a few drinks. As drugs go, it's, you know, it, it's one where you can be kind of addicted and yet be pretty functional. Um, right. So um, anyway, that's, those, that's the way it's, I think it's going. Uh, clearly, uh, one thing that clearly struck me this week, and I don't think I said it last week, is that this whole document drama with Mar-a-Lago and will Trump be indicted is fading from the election consciousness. Uh, mm -hmm. It's, it, it, you know, it, it is looking well, increasingly unlikely that Trump is going to be indicted. Uh, well, the special the, uh, mass the judge slows things down, for one thing. It slows things down, but it'll be fading anyway. They have, they, they, you know, they, they have a limited number of ways to go to keep the public interest up in this incredibly tedious, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, there's some disputes that are uninteresting. Trump sells national security documents to the communist Chinese or the Saudis. That's interesting. Trump has some unspecified classified documents that we don't know what they are. And they're probably just chotchkas he keeps around to amuse Visitors to Mar-a-Lago, we don't know. They could be that. They could be serious. Uh, uh, that's not interesting, mm -hmm. and it's sort of inherently tedious until they get some meat in there. And they and uh, anyway, so maybe without the special master, they'd be faster at getting some meat and leaking it. But supposedly they don't leak, right? Yeah. So are you excited about this uh, right-wing MAGA party having one in Sweden? I'm excited that that finally they may. Uh, do something to crack down on immigration, which is driving them crazy and causing a crime wave. Mm -hmm. And is there whole is the reason for this the the MAGA party winning? I don't know what else the MAGA party stands for. They've supposedly shed their Nazi past. Always a good thing. Uh, and they're not probably going to be in the government, but they're going to provide votes to the government. You know, it's 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 proving no, incredibly hard in the government, aren't they? I don't know. They're, 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 you hear it both I ways. I think they're going right? to be part of the governing coalition. That's uh, different. That's different than actually be having cabinet ministers in the government. I think. Huh. I think, but okay. maybe I'm wrong. But um, the uh, the and they're also there's also a you know a, a populist leader rising in Italy. I think. I think uh, this this very skilled woman, sort of the AOC of the right for Italy. Uh, and in Canada, a populist has been elected uh, to head the opposition. A populist who endorsed the caravan on that uh, 
caused uh, Krista Friedland, formerly respectable journalist, to freeze the bank accounts of Trumpist agitators in a, in a move that would not pass muster under the American Constitution. Uh, so, so the, wind, um, the wind is at your back globally. MAGA is on the march. Congratulations. They're, they're on the march. Uh, thank you. Um, I'm just enduring this ridicule because I know no, you're. No, 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 Mickey. I'm always you, happy when you're I know, happy. I know you. I know you had four hours of sleep and not a suit of it. So sarcasm That's and ridicule. That's true. I did have. I, I got four hours have. of sleep. I got four hours of sleep. No suit of fed, and sarcasm is my crutch. And I'm hoping it'll get me through the next forty <laughs> okay. minutes. Um, that what, and what Ukraine. So what's not clear is whether the Biden Philadelphia speech flopped. I think is it that did. the foundations of, is of democracy? The, your MAGA is eroding the foundations of yes, the Republican. That's speech? the MAGA anti MAGA Republican speech where he later said he wasn't talking about the voters, just the officials. Yeah. Could have said that in the speech. Wouldn't have been hard to do, but he didn't do it. Yeah, uh, we, so we discussed this last week. We discussed week, that last week. We did, what's not clear is has it flopped? He then gave another speech on 9 11 where I thought he was going to make the mistake that you highlighted last week or the week before, which is connect the fight for democracy at home with the fight for democracy abroad. And there was one one sentence that sort of flicked at it where he said he's talking about 9-11 and, you know, the talking about the fight against autocracy abroad, presumably, because that the 9-11 people were from abroad. And he said, and it's a fight we have to wage every day at home, too. OK, mm -hmm. I think that's like that was like a minimal the minimal possible reference to the flight fight at home. And I think he basically backed off making the big connection uh, that you were afraid he would make. Uh, your, your mileage may vary. Does that sentence mean to you that he made the horrible connection? Uh, I'd have to, I'd have to hear it. He, he said, what is the fight we have to fight at home too? He I said, mean of course, it, and it's a fight we have to fight for democracy is uh, not just a fight. We have to fight, on special yeah. occasions like 9-11, but it's a fight we have to wage every day. And he may have said at home too. Yeah. He well, may not have said at home, but um, I just think that's, uh, that's a throwaway line designed to appease it, the internal speechwriters who are demanding it. It may be the closest he's come to explicitly making the connection between his global war on autocracy and his domestic war on MAGA. The, um, Edward Wong in New York Times wrote a piece connecting the two, uh, I think a little over a week ago. And I think he, I think Wong was the first person to note how naturally convergent these two tropes are and argue that Biden is in effect exploiting the, their, their parallelism rhetorically, even if he hasn't connected them. I thought, I thought you did it before Wong. Well, uh, I may have mentioned it in the parrot room last week, but that was after the Wong piece had appeared. So really? I, 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 uh, yeah, so I don't know. I, I defer to him. I, I may write about it this, this weekend or, uh, in the newsletter, but, um, the, um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm should... skeptical. I think both are a bad idea. They're, they're bad ideas independently and even worse together is my view. Um, the, uh, well, I, I, anyway, I just think he failed to go the full walk. The full walk. He didn't even do a half walk. Yeah. No, he, uh, ha he hasn't done the full Wong. And Only Wong that, has done the full Wong. That's a, that suggests that the Philadelphia speech uh, did not succeed because I think even though it was like in incredibly bad taste to turn this 9-11 thing into a domestic political speech, he could have squeezed another two sentences in there <laughs> if he wanted to make the connection without you know, really pissing people off. At the same time, the, the venue, as you suggest, may have been all that stopped him from making the connection more explicitly, and he may do that down the road. Mm. It's interesting. There's the, um, there's a, uh, there was a um, piece by Todd Bensman, who's a very good, uh, he's sort of, he's a sort of a restrictionist reporter, but he, he, he calls it as he sees it in, in Latin America, and he goes around with a video camera, and if the wall is working. He'll tell you the wall is working. If the wall is not working, he'll tell you the wall is not working. He, he'll tell you how the immigrants are getting in. Are they being blocked by Mexico? He's a straight shooter. Mm -hmm. uh, but and but because you know the the meat, mainstream media has left the field wide open for Todd Bensman, he comes up with great scoops. One one of one scoop he came up with is we told the 
unelected uh, temporary head of Haiti, who is basically running Haiti as a dictator. The legislature doesn't really exist anymore. The predecessor was assassinated, perhaps with his complicity, some people charge. Uh, We told him, don't worry, we will stop all this talk about freedom and elections and stop pressuring you if you just take back these Haitians that are under this bridge in El Paso and causing an optic PR problem for us. So We did that recently? No, this was about when the Haitians were under the bridge in El Paso, which is six months ago. Okay. So the war on autocracy stopped when it came time to well, PR it stopped, for it stops the, in a lot of places. That's one when it came time it. For PR for the Biden yeah. midterm campaign, which is yep. you have to take this optic problem off our hand and, and, and then you can go and uh, and be an autocrat. Now, there are some people who say there were other reasons that it would make sense to leave this guy in power. The alter, the you know, because Haiti is turning into a Libyan style gang state and only the, the police are the only force that can stop it from degenerating into total chaos. And this guy has the police on his side. And if you turn it over to the do-gooders who want to set up an election, it's all going to be a disaster. So that, you could make that argument, but the ex-ambassador to Haiti said that was not the argument that the Biden administration bought. The Biden administration was thinking politically of how to solve this optics problem of the Haitians coming into America. And so uh, that's that was their that's why they did it, mm-hmm. not for all the other other possible reasons. And the Haitians, of course, are now coming back into America. Um, uh, there was one community where virtually all the immigrants were from Haiti. I forget where. Anyway, um, if you were a Haitian, you would come to America, too. Uh, anyway, the that's it for the war on autocracy. The other, the only other interesting thing is the abortion. This is suggested by a reader, and it's very smart. The abortion issue has an inversion effect, which is it boosts Democrats in red states because they're really worried that the red state is going to impose an abortion restriction, mm-hmm. and it it takes away in states like New York, where they're, they they know that there's never going to abortion is always going to be available in New York. Right. They don't have to worry. So it boosts Zeldin against Hochul, for example, but it, uh, which is just within the realm well, or, of possibility. Or it just fails to boost Hochul against Zeldin, right? Yeah. I mean, that's more like what yeah, you're saying. Right. Well, it's the same thing. It's a zero-sum yeah. game. Uh, and uh, yeah, so uh, I just thought that was interesting, and I haven't seen anybody in the press. But it still sounds it like a net way. plus for Democrats. It boosts candidates in the red state, and it boosts Democrats in red states and boosts neither candidate I mean, of course, in relative terms, it, as you say, it has to boost one or the other, but it increases turnout for Democrats in red states and increases turnout for neither candidate in blue states, right? Well, no, it might turn out some, uh, you know, the, the pro-lifers in blue states, such as they are, will turn out more because of it because they feel it's a, you know, they, 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 there's turnout on both sides, but the the, 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 the the Democratic turnout has been hidden because they could rely on the Supreme Court to protect them. Mm-hmm. Now they can't. Uh, it is, is, I think it's definitely a big net plus for the Democrats. Uh, right. there are Republicans who claim abortion isn't that big an issue and our voters are motivated too. And that's what Lindsey Graham said. I just don't buy it. Okay. Uh, so I think that's it for now for the midterms. There's, um, uh, there's, uh, big Ukraine developments, including people are now starting to fantasize. Well, I, and Applebaum's been fantasizing for a while, but people are starting to say we have to think seriously of what happens when Russia loses, even though Walter Russell Meade says it's way premature for that, that this plane that the Ukrainians marched on is a big flat plane and armies go back and forth all the time and then they get overextended and then there's a cross strike and they get rolled back. And this, this is not like the beginning of the end for Russia. Yeah, I mean, you can argue it a few ways. I mean, I think one of the take-homes is we really, I'm glad we quit taping on Thursdays. Two weeks in a row, you know, we were overtaken by events on Friday, and so we wind up discussing them basically a week later. I mean, last Thursday, this counteroffensive in Kharkiv had started, and I remember saying, you know, I had kind of studied up on what the optimists were saying on Twitter, and I said, well, what they're hoping for 
is, you know, they want to get, they've got this one town. If they can consolidate there, they'll be within uh, artillery range of, I think, Kupiansk. And then, and that's a big juncture. And if they can, so they can barrage the railroad station, put it out of business and, you know, this big transport hub. And that'll, that'll mean that a zoom to the south is then, you know, not getting restocked. And that's a big staging ground in turn for the northern assault on, uh, you know, the remaining two big Ukrainian held, held cities in Donetsk. And then I wake up like 12 hours later, they were actually in Kupiansk. They were just barraging it. And 24 hours later, they were in Izum. And uh, it just happened with kind of breathtaking speed. Um, but I think, so in terms of what it means, I mean, first of all, in terms of, you know, why it happened, I think a few things. Well, first of all, to back up, you know, we were saying last week, so maybe the thing in Kherson was a, a feint. Well, the, the kind of official word, and I think uh, probably the, the correct word, is that not really. Kherson's a serious offensive, but, uh, you know, they the Ukrainians made a point of not concealing it because they did want to divert troops from uh, from the Kharkiv area where they did plan in conjunction with American officials that became explicit afterwards. American officials kind of leaked their role in all this wisely or not. Um, and uh, so there were there were these two separate offensives and and the Kherson one, it's not like it's failing. It was planned from the beginning to be a more deliberate thing that was going to take longer. It's running into resistance but it may yet succeed. Uh, what I don't understand is, don't the Russians have satellites? Can't they see that troops are massing around Kharkiv and, and react accordingly? Are we the only people who have satellites? Well, you'd think, because in fact, you know, some of these nationalist uh, bloggers and others, these Russian kind of hyper-nationalists who are in favor of the invasion are complaining some of them are pointing out that they warned the Russians. I mean, they can show you tweets days before this where they're tweeting like, hello, anybody home in Moscow? Troops are massing. So don't ask me why. I mean, look, they're stretched thin. And, and this, first, of, let me say, in terms of, what, okay, what do we make of this? Why did it happen? First of all, I think the U.S. Weapons have made a big difference. I think the HIMARS have made a big difference in Kharkiv and Kherson, everywhere else in disrupting logistics, in destroying ammo depots. That matters. Second, there is the morale issue. You know, morale sounds like an abstraction. Sometimes it matters. Ukrainians are fighting for their country. Uh, morale was seems to have been quite low uh, in Kharkiv on the Russian side. Now, the reason you can't make too much of that is these were not typical Russian troops. In fact, there were almost no Russian troops, per se, in Kharkiv. There were two kinds of troops. There were those who were actually from Ukraine, from Luhansk, okay, from like Luhansk People's Republic or whatever. And they were apparently conscripts. They weren't, and they weren't even Luhansk. They weren't even defending Luhansk. They were out of Luhansk, didn't want to be in the army, weren't from Russia, not enthusiastic about being there. The second kind of uh, so-called soldier there was Russian, but they were actually more like a police force. And their job after the invasion was supposed to be to, you know, secure order in the cities. And suddenly they're cast into a defensive role and say, hey, why don't you learn how to drive a tank and stuff? And so, like, they they were out of their depth. So the what fact about the that, Wagner group, well, the Wagner group, I didn't hear about much of a presence on their part. Those guys are they're they seem pretty eager i mean half of them are convicted criminals they like violence you, you sort of think that the wagner group is slowly taking over the war don't you when you got that impression well uh, you know as as russia has tried to beef up its manpower without resorting to mobilization the wagner group has been important and they have been systematically recruiting in yeah, prisons yeah, in russia yeah, yeah. but anyway don't, don't let me interrupt okay Sorry. so as you're saying i mean you uh the reason you can't infer too much uh, from what happened in Kharkiv, I think, is because, A, morale-wise, this was not like a typical representative sample of the troops. They were they were atypical, and they were spread thin, you know. Uh, now, that uh, there are reasons to think morale may not be great in other parts of the, of the Russian front as well, 
but still this alone does not establish that. Yeah. Now, the fact that they're spread thin is significant. And it gets back to this thing that people have been saying from the beginning, which is in the short term, Ukraine has a manpower advantage. They have more mobilized troops. In the long term, in principle, Russia has an overwhelming advantage if Putin finds it politically feasible to do a mass mobilization. Uh, and the question is, will he do that or will he do even any kind of significant partial mobilization in reaction to this? Most observers think, seem to think that a mass mobilization is not in the cards. I mean, that would take a long time. And there, there are difficulties associated with it. One is apparently they'd be short on officers to train the troops because all the good officers are in Ukraine and a number of them have been killed. Uh, and also just institutionally, the Russian military is apparently not set up for a very efficient, truly mass mobilization. But I'm sure that if Putin did do any kind of big mobilization over the winter, they could they could train, you know, some of these guys up and you might have a very different picture but, in the spring. But basically, a lot depends on the political situation in Moscow. Does Putin feel like he can, he has the the political, uh, you know, capital to to do this? And two interesting things. One is the Miller bloggers that you mentioned, the military bloggers. Putin is letting them dissent. And they're not being arrested. And, you know, and they're, they're saying the army has fucked this up. OK, presumably Putin is ultimately responsible for that. Uh, there, uh, there are even some TV announcers that have, I believe, given a more uh, acidic interpretation of the war. Mm -hmm. uh, and are there... So my first question is, are there any people who actually don't think the war is a good idea who are allowed to say this? Yeah, there was a guy on state TV saying they should seek peace negotiations. Okay. He was very, he, he seemed very earnest. He, he yeah. uh, okay. you know, I, I think state TV in Russia, it's not completely a puppet show. It's fairly carefully manicured, uh, you know, in terms of who can get on there. And you can say things that'll get you bounced forever. In fact, I think this guy, Dugan, this nationalist whose daughter was killed uh, at, at some point crossed some line and was suddenly no longer on state TV. Uh, but, you know, it's uh, anyway, the range of, of debate. I mean, I mean, he's, the range of debate to me seems broader than it is on MSNBC or CNN. Honestly, I mean, it may be not the new CNN. Uh, well, yeah, we'll wait and see. I'm looking forward to that. But I mean, you you have seen in the in the past uh, week everything from yes, mass mobilization, take the gloves off to we need to seek peace negotiations right. now. That's a pretty broad range. I, I don't know exactly what it means. I don't know to what extent the Overton window is being set by the state. And I think not many people are really very confident of what Putin's got to do. The thinking is he's got to do something. He probably will find some way to increase the size of the armed forces, at least somewhat. They've already, they've already been doing these various little things that have that effect. Um, but, and then the other thing he's done, of course, in, in response to this is a couple of things, you know, taking out these, uh, these power stations with missiles, and taking, well, attacking, hitting this dam with missiles, uh, which I want to talk about a little. Uh, and I, I think those have two purposes. I mean, I, I, I think both of them, to some extent, have a strategic military purpose. Uh, the dam definitely does in, in a very specific way, which is that it led a lot of water to pour down a river that the Ukrainians had been crossing in order to uh, press the Russian forces in Kherson. Kherson is between two rivers. There's the Dnieper River uh, to its uh, east, which the Ukrainians want to push the Russians across. But then to the west, uh, there's this other river that the Ukrainians have been pouring across. Um, and this was a pretty damn audacious thing, but they hit this dam with a long-range missile and it didn't completely destroy it, but it did apparently uh, wipe out some of the pontoon bridges. Uh, you know, the, wa the water flow resulting from this wiped out some of the pontoon bridges that the, uh, the Ukrainians had been using. Anyway, I think the these things are, in addition to whatever strategic purpose they have, I think they are a reminder, you know, 
that, you know, as I've been saying, there's a long way between the amount of devastation the Russians have been wreaking and a nuclear attack. And this is an example. They haven't been systematically taking out power stations and dams. They could. Um, And so I think that's one thing you want to keep an eye on is how far does Putin go in that direction? That's um. That, that that brings up the you know people are starting to speculate but what happens if russia keeps losing right and there are two dangers there one is uh putin will resort to nuclear weapons short uh, tactical nuclear weapons and uh walter russell mead wrote a column about that this week in the wall street journal where he basically said yeah that would be a total disaster so we have to uh we have to make it clear to putin that we would regard use of nuclear weapons as as if Ukraine were basically as if Ukraine were a NATO country. It would be an attack on the United States. We'd be in the Cuban Missile Crisis situation. And he, I guess that would help, but would it? Is that, um, is that, is that I mean, it seems, it seems like we're, we're heading what, blindly. What, is, what does that mean exactly? We would retaliate with nuclear weapons or we would, or we would attack Russia with conventional arms, or I mean, what does I don't he know. want us to threaten? I, I, I'm sure it's ambig- intentionally ambiguous, but it's it's we would do whatever he did if he dropped a tac- did a tactical nuclear weapon in uh, you know in in West Texas. You know, I mean, well, I, I guess it probably wouldn't hurt for Biden to say something a little vague but forceful, like we would consider the we of course consider the use of nuclear weapons unacceptable. I'm sure he uh, said that. Well, yeah, I don't know how much more specific you want to get than that. I I don't imagine Putin. I mean, first of all, I have never bought into the Putin is crazy scenario. So I'm not that worried about him just doing something suicidal. And, you know, it's kind of ironic that some of the people who do claim he's crazy (laughs) seem to want to push him to the brink. I've never quite understood that. But, um, But I do think... I mean, one thing they say is Russian nuclear doctrine leaves room for the use of tactical weapons in a, I think what they call an escalate to de-escalate situation. Yeah. It's a way of, of forcing the, right. uh, you know, facing down the opponent. What I, I can imagine, go ahead. I don't think Meade says Putin is crazy. He says there's a yeah. long way to, he agrees with you. There's a long way to go before he uses the nuclear weapons. I think that's true. I mean, but anyway, go ahead, at the same time, uh, I continue to think that when people start, you know, when people start saying, well, let's push them all the way back and take back Crimea and the, uh, you know, the, the, the parts of the Donbass that have been held for years by separatists. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I assume that, that Putin considers that a kind of uh, existential political threat, not an existential threat that's, to Russia, but to his regime. That's not... If you read Ann Applebaum's article, you know that that's that is not, those are not the Ukrainian demands. The Ukrainian demands are that plus reparations for everything that's happened. Okay. Well, good luck. So they're, that. they're beyond that, and uh, uh, maybe that's just a make weight for negotiations. But the the, um, the this Ukrainian defense minister said we have you know talking about the, the threats of nuclear. War and also the threat that Russia will just disintegrate. It'll be like a chaotic, you know, yeah. disastrous state. He said, "We have learned to live with fear. Now, now you have to learn to live with fear." And I sort of say, "Thanks a lot, buddy. No, I choose not to live with fear. I choose you make a deal with the Russians so we don't have to live with fear. How about that?" Wait, who was it who said that? The defense minister of Ukraine. Yeah. And uh, it, this is the this is the tagline of Alpha's piece, and I'm saying, wait, why do I have to live with fear? It's their war. Why are they dragging us into their fear? Fuck that. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, it, it led me to think of you know maybe you should reduce these demands. Forget about the reparations and forget about Crimea and forget about a couple of other things, if it means we don't have to live with your fear. Uh. Yeah, we're I'm your not friend. in favor we're, of globalizing. We're, we're sending you weapons. You don't have a right to impose your fear on us. Well, uh, yeah. So, so, but I mean, to some extent, they almost inherently do, right? I, I mean, it, it. I mean, I assume they would say it's like it's their business if they want to push the Russians as far as they want to push them. 
But the fact is that does globalize the fear because the scenarios, some of the scenarios for what the Russians might do if their backs are truly against the wall are inherently a, a threat beyond the borders of Ukraine. And um, so I don't know what well, you do. Applebaum was talking about the the second problem, not the nukes, but the uh, but the uh, but the fear of, that Putin will lose power. And, and 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 there'll be who knows what happens next. There's no real mechanism of succession in Russia anymore. And presumably, although she hasn't gone into this because it you know calls into question her drive for victory. Presumably, the dominant force will be from the right. People who these people who said you screwed up this war. Not people who said we should never have waged the war in the first place, but the. The, the people who were saying we were betrayed, stab in the back, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and do we want, is, are they better than Putin? I mean, do we want them to run Russia? And what if Russia fragments and there's a civil war right. and, you know, nukes are on the loose? And it just seems potentially wonderful and a potential huge disaster. And maybe mm. you should have thought about that a few months ago. Well, one problem is that for almost all this war, the American media has paid very little attention, I think, to to seriously analyzing the political dynamics that Putin faces at home. That's partly because we wrongly think of autocrats as people who are almost immune to political pressures, partly for other reasons. But I wrote a piece about this in the non-zero newsletter last week, kind of a complaining about this and then, you know, looking at recent attempts to finally start looking at the political situation in Russia, because in the wake of this Ukrainian military success, people are realizing, well, it now is a big question. How's Putin going to react? And so we are start, starting to see these stories about the domestic political situation. And I think it tends to, the, the, the standard assessment we're getting in the, in the, and I don't know whether to really trust this, because again, I don't think we, we do that great a job of covering this story, but the standard assessment is that the pressure on Putin to, to get tougher in the war and expand the military effort is coming more from the elite level, including these bloggers. And, and the, and, and the resistance he fears uh, that he would get to a general mobilization is more at the grassroots level. Like, there, there's a lot of people who are telling pollsters, yeah, I support the war, but you start drafting their sons right. and you hear a very different story. That, that if that is right, and it, it's probably more or less, I'd bet it, it, it sounds kind of right, then, then you're right to think that if there is some kind of coup, it's going to come from the right. It's at the elite level. It's, it's the people who do palace coups who are, if anything, more militaristic and more nationalistic if that's easy for you to imagine, it may not be, then Putin has been. Um, um, well, but if it, if it, it was a right-wing regime and stable and had to regroup for five years, it wouldn't be that bad. But um, No, I mean, a, a, a right-wing regime... Uh, I, I bristle... You know, the, I, I mean, could be as easy to live with geopolitically as, as what we've got. I mean, he, I wouldn't, you know, he's not exactly... A leftist, I, I but, bristle at I bristle at the at the use of right wing to describe autocrats. Seems to me they come right. in all it's, sizes. It's so. not what the term. We, we, fe we fell into that. We fell into that. We shouldn't do that. I feel bad. We shouldn't. But uh, the, but I guess I would say. That, but <laughs> but it's a separate question. You know what are the implications for the war if it happens during the war? I mean, if if he's replaced by somebody who who wants a bigger war. That could be a problem for the whole world, uh, you know, not just because they might go nuclear right. immediately, but but uh, I don't think they would. But because if they threw all the resources into the war, it could go on a very long time. It could ultimately lead to the complete ruination of Ukraine, and it would stand a good chance of going beyond Ukraine's uh, borders and eventually going nuclear. I, I think the way. To me, the most likely way it could go nuclear in the short run would be if he gets his back against the wall a lot more than it is and kind of threatens to use a tactical nuke and his bluff gets called uh, because we think he's bluffing and he feels 
he, he can't afford to be seen as bluffing. And maybe it's something like a tactical nuke that hits Snake Island, which is uninhabited, right? Uh, maybe something like that. But who knows what the reaction to that would be? Right. Um, anyway, uh, we, we've done the two main topics, and I have a feeling we've talked for a long time. But um, Yeah, about enough. I mean, we can, we can adjourn to the we, pair. We, there are two sort of hot topics we haven't touched. One is this busing of migrants across the country, which seems to have become a big story. Am I wrong? Am I just in my cocoon? It seems to be, it's become way bigger a story than it should be. But but somehow it's... Uh, it, now, the which, cable, one, which cable, one are you cable talking news about? That, cable, the, well, the Martha's Vineyard one is the okay, most the, so current one. But, sending the migrants you know, to Martha's Vineyard? Governor, Governor Abbott in Texas has been sending migrants that come into Texas to other parts of the country for a while, including Washington, D.C. and New York. And the result has been beyond his wildest dreams, as Mark Krikorian said. All of a sudden, the the Democratic mayors of these cities started whining, oh, we can't handle these people. Well, why are you a sanctuary city if you can't handle the people? Don't, don't send these immigrants. You should, you know, if, well, if the immigrants are, migrants are such a bad thing. Why does Texas have to suffer 100% of the burden? Uh, I thought immigrants were a good thing. So um, it, it, it's called the, the liberals bluff, as it were, and created, and it also has done what the noted political pundit Herschel Walker said. Now we're talking about immigration. We weren't before. Okay. So it's succeeded in doing that. Now DeSantis comes along and he takes a bunch of migrants, apparently from Texas, recruits them. They stop in Florida. So they're then his migrants, and then he sends them to Martha's Vineyard. Okay, that's a little different than to say because they're not really organically in Florida. Um, they're not. He sort of makes them his responsibility before sending them along. So it's it's more of a more of a stunt and a scheme. How did he get them to Abbott come to? How did he induce them to come to Florida so he could? I don't them? know. And like, the rumor what's is, the, yeah, the go ahead. He, the rumor is he has a recruiter in Texas who promises them work permits in Boston. Instead, they could go to Martha's Vineyard. But that's, that's kind of fraudulent, right? He's not like the mayor. Well, of that Boston, would be kind of fraudulent. Called. That would yeah. be kind of fraudulent. But uh, you know, they're they're not necessarily having a bad time. I mean, they were, you know, on the floor of a bus station, and now they're being welcomed in the loving arms of one of the most beautiful cities in America, and uh, and uh, you know, the they're being sent off to a somewhere. The governor of Massachusetts is making a home for them at some naval base. They will eventually end up wherever the hell they want. So um, they, Biden is basically freeing these people to go wherever they want. Okay, they can't get to where they want often, but they're they can go wherever they want. Wait, why is so, but why is it Biden's uh, call to? That's what Biden is doing. Biden is they Biden is they 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 say they're asylees, and Biden says, okay, oh. uh, you have to report to court when your case is heard two or three years from now. I see. Until then, you're free to roam the country. And so DeSantis uh, takes advantage of that, basically, yeah. for political purposes. Yeah, yeah, um, it, it's a little creepy to me to just see him kind of using them as props, but uh, uh, it kind of reminds me the way he used those high school students in masks who were standing behind him. Uh, but, uh, you know, but he is. No, the, I, think, I mean, I will say, you know, one thing this reminds me is that uh, he... He would certainly be a very formidable opponent to Trump in the in the primaries, uh, you know, as a general election candidate. I mean, I think he's also formidable. Some of the stuff he's doing that would make him formidable in the primaries is probably a bridge too far for general election purposes. But he's a he's a whatever you think of this kind of tactic, you know, it it shows the kind of audacity that I think would work uh in 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 his quest for the nomination i agree although it bothers me too i think they should uh i think i think they've as uh, they've made their point in a way that i think will stick maybe keep making it for a while but then back off it i mean problem is of course these immigrants will be absorbed uh you know the main problem for martha's vineyard i think was the hordes of you know human rights lawyers and activists and uh you know helpers who were coming 
inundating the town for these 50 people, they probably got 300 you know, obnoxious NGO types that they really didn't want hanging around. So, um, uh, it, uh, but, um, it, it has, has a slight bad odor and, and the, the Abbott thing has much less of a bad odor. So, but I think DeSantis should, has made his point. Instead, he does seem to be trying to, uh, to capitalize on a, on some good publicity and do it again. And I think that's a, that reflects a bad instinct, I think. Okay, so we're approaching uh, an hour. What was your second issue? The second thing is this big Jason DePaul piece that's, that said what I referred to earlier, which is after welfare reform, child, uh, child poverty of all races plunged to historic lows. Uh, and the left has now given up on saying, uh, oh, welfare reform is a terrible idea. It, they now say they're not trying to jujitsu the, uh, the the success of these anti-poverty efforts into saying, oh, it was all because of increased welfare, increased government aid. Well, uh, you know, we can talk some more about it, but basically, uh, A, I take credit for the government aid for welfare reform because people are more generous when they think the money is going to workers as opposed to people who don't work. So they're earned income tax credit which is geared to workers and the child tax credit, which is currently geared to workers, although not if Joe Biden has his way, uh, were very helpful, but they were help they, people funded them because they went to workers and also they reinforced work. So it was a virtuous Wait, cycle. Did you say you personally take credit for this? No, I mean, I, um, I think welfare reform, I think welfare reform, my side of the debate, welfare, the pro welfare hmm. reform side that supported the reform in, 96 takes credit for expanded government aid because that was part of what was predicted. Clinton said it as, as as all Clinton talked about when he signed the bill was now we have a setup where we can give lots of government aid because it goes only to workers. So we're going to have a great, uh, well, you know, work state, work welfare, work-based welfare state. I mean, it's not like it was, it's not like it was a hidden agenda. Clinton said it explicitly and it happened. So you can't say, well, it's all government aid. See, we on the left were right. No, you on the left were wrong. Clinton was right. Uh, so there's that. And and also uh, uh, Scott Winship of the American Enterprise Institute points out that uh, the the, the 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 data on which this this Jason DePaul story were based, probably unbeknownst to Jason DePaul, were were bullshit. In fact, increased work and increased earnings played a much bigger role and government aid played a much lesser role in reducing child poverty than this study lets on. Here's, here's the example of the bogusness of the, the data. Okay. Uh, government, uh, work based government, uh, work based effects, sorry, like the, the effect of welfare into, you know, goading people to work or the economy, the good economy or uh, a national minimum wage law were all ignored because they only paid attention to uh, uh, things that varied from state to state, okay? Uh, but uh, if when it comes to the things they liked, uh, i.e., uh, uh, you, know, uh, you know, increases in aid, national increases in the child tax credit, national increases in the earned income tax credit, they counted those. So they, they count the things they like, but they ignore, they, they rig, rig the uh, assumptions to ignore the things they don't like, like a good economy. So uh, once you take that into account, the picture changes radically. So um, anyway, that's that That was a big deal in my neck of the woods last week. It was a big story in the New York Times. Uh, the, 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 I think the bottom line is that the, 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 uh, this 96 welfare reform was pretty much totally vindicated, but I would be criticized if I said that. Even deep poverty, which is a big concept on the left, not a crazy concept, uh, went down. So. Uh, okay, I didn't see the Times piece. I guess I should have. It was, the, you know, it was Jason DePaul, which is, he's on the left, but he's very fair and he's sensitive to the arguments on the right. So he had, he had a bunch of conservatives saying, see, Welfare reform caused a lot of people to go to work. That's why child poverty went down. Uh, 
And uh, but he he bought into the argument that government aid had a lot to do with it based on this data, which was flawed. The, the, the problem with it is there's no real way to get a handle on it because clearly the most significant thing that welfare did, reform did was cut the welfare rolls in half. Okay, mm -hmm. so they're half the number of people on welfare. We don't know what cultural effects that had. We don't know where the people that would have gone on welfare in the alternative universe where welfare still existed, what they did now that was different. Did they go to work? That's not really captured by a lot of statistics that track where people who go on welfare go. So uh, it's it's not easy to attribute, uh, you know, the cause and effect uh, to one fact or another. But they passed welfare reform and things got better. That's sort of the basic bottom line. Okay, so we are in an hour. What are we going to talk okay. about the parrot room at Patreon.com/slash parrot room? I could go on and on about this. Uh, there, there, there okay. are many. <laughs> why don't you why don't you do that i'm going to press the stop record button and then why don't you continue um, okay um so we were you know one thing we're going to do uh the the great allegedly great french director jean-luc godard how do you pronounce his name anyway he died uh we, we both said well we should watch his path-breaking movie breathless and we both started uh, we haven't finished, but we can say a little something about it and then it's vow different. to finish and, and maybe start a movie discussion club in the pair room. We're going to talk about that. Maybe take up smoking. You know, well, no, I want to save that for the pair room. Uh, just <laughs> something I noticed about what's the deal about the, the size of the cigarette in that guy's mouth in that movie. Anyway, well, I, yeah. I digress. The um, uh, Maybe a little something about Roger Federer, who announced his retirement. Um, um, okay. What, what, why don't you name a couple of things? Uh, there's, uh, I think we should start a, a, uh, a section which would be healthy for me on things Biden has done right. Oh. I tend to overlook okay. them. And uh, there are a couple of things that he seems to have done right. Uh, there's uh, there's a, um, a wacky uh, woke campaign against food oppression, Bob. There's okay. an impressive hierarchy of foods. I didn't know that. Um, okay. Uh, there's uh, a, a point to be made about the Epstein case. Oh, good. Which Epstein. is which is a, more of a pundity point than a uh, evidence point. But um, and uh, I want to talk about there's just the, 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 this rich guy around here, uh, Munger, Warren Buffett's partner. Charlie Munger, and Charlie Munger. And he said, and Ann Coulter approved saying that uh, it's not it's not greed that drives the economy. It's envy. And I think he's right about that. But I think that has sort of implications. And uh, yeah, that's and I haven't explored. It kind of uh, makes it, sense it, if I understand uh, what I think he's it makes saying. sense to me, too. Um, it causes trouble. It causes trouble for me. We'll talk about that. We'll talk uh, about your envy. Well, we know about your envy, but no, no. I, that's an endlessly fascinating subject. Is my is envy, envy is completely out of control. It causes trouble for my my uh, dogma, my social egalitarian dogma. That's that's suitably cryptic. Let's leave it there. It's your, yeah, your okay. not your envy, your dogma. Um, let's see. Not my karma, my dogma. Now we said we might get into long termism. We might. Uh, we, uh, there's, you know, we, the, another, another thing that happened timing wise is I think when we taped the public podcast last week, the queen, we didn't know the queen had died. Oh no, you did. The queen had just died, but I didn't know it. That was it. Anyway, uh, Glenn Greenwald, uh, highlighted a tweet that was said to be an unacceptably bad taste about the queen. And this just raises questions about, uh, free speech and uh, and what Twitter should and shouldn't do. And I, I want to use that tweet as a uh, as as kind of a case study. Um, I think I want to uh, talk about something that I wrote about in the Earthling, the Friday edition non-zero newsletter, which is out now, which is a story that was taken to mean that See, it really, uh, Putin's invasion really had nothing to do with NATO after all, uh, which I beg to differ with, that interpretation. Um, 
what what else what else there, uh there one thing i want to do is um uh eric schmidt former ceo of google or big shot at google mm -hmm. uh uh is now sort of beating the war drums about the uh competition with china in in uh you know technology uh all forms of technology biotechnology but also the standard you know computer technology uh and uh and he you know it's it's like a war and if we we can't lose to china we can't lose to china okay and uh somebody uh, actually and john ellis had the wit to uh quote this asked him well what does this defeat by china look like isn't the economy a zero-sum game a non-zero-sum game so there's still a place for the United States. We can still be happy and prosperous if China wins the wins the tech war, mm -hmm. and you know, uh, and 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 Schmidt gave an answer, and I want to read you the answer and see if you find it satisfying. Oh, good! I'll be reacting in real time. A lot of drama. Uh, uh, I think I know what your reaction is, but who knows? Maybe not. They're going to have fusion power by 2028, Bob. Uh. Okay. I think we're doing pretty well on that front, but we'll see. Um, and there are a bunch of other little things. Polio is coming back. <laughs> the, the story of why it's coming back is actually kind of interesting. Not, okay. not exactly what you expect. Okay. Hope you're keeping track of all this. You're making a lot of promises uh, about that what we won't we keep discussed my... in the parrot room. And they are that's... tantalizing promises. We're going to talk about polio, folks. That's my modus operandi. Um, and there's also the merge. Did you follow the merge? The Ethereum? Yeah. The crypto merge, which I don't understand. <laughs> I don't either, but that doesn't mean we can't talk about it. Well, it's, it has that in common with a lot of subjects, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, so patreon.com slash parrot room is the place. Uh, we are the people. And I don't know, need I say more, Mickey? Don't you think that that itself is sufficiently alluring? Just... Uh, Telling them that we'll be there, and and yeah, I'm beginning to worry that people might have difficulty, so they come to this site first and then they jump over to Patreon. You think they can't the handle room. that? If they I can't handle that, we don't want them in the parrot room, Mickey. These are <laughs> people like, not capable of leading our nation like, in competition with China. We don't want we're them. Like, we're like Charlie Chris. We don't want their votes. Yes. Okay. But I just I guess we could give them a little guidance. The way you do this is you go to Patreon. You go to patreon.com slash parrot room. Um, okay. That'll help. Yeah. yeah, that'll help. Arrows to Toyland. We used to call that at Newsweek. Also, can I just say, Mickey, even if they don't want to go there, but they think that the the vigorous and illuminating discourse you and I have is worth supporting, they could just go there and sign up and give us their money, never show up. That would be okay. Or if they just feel sorry for us and want to give us money for that reason, but don't want to actually watch the stuff in the parrot room, that would be okay. Am I, are you on board with this? They could hate watch us too, right? They could hate. There are people who hate watches. There are haters in the parrot room. It's a shock, but there are people who pay, who pay to hate. <laughs> not, many, Very, not many. We're monetizing hate. That's great. We're harnessing as many human emotions as we can figure out how to harness folks. And okay. uh, the place to see it happen is patreon.com slash parrot room. And uh, the parrot, as always, has the last word. Right, Mickey? Uh, see you there. Uh, <laughs> I never tire.